Good evening, everyone. My name is Natalie Turvey, and I'm President and Executive Director of the Canadian Journalism Foundation. We start this event tonight with an important reminder that the Toronto Reference Library, where we are gathering, is on Indigenous land. This is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Wendat, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. We gratefully acknowledge these Indigenous nations for their guardianship of this land. And to those who observe Yom Kippur, we wish you a very good holy day. It's my pleasure to welcome you to tonight's JTALK event for an inside look at investigations into sexual assault allegations in organized hockey. I'd also like to welcome those who are joining us at home via our national live stream and a warm welcome to the journalism students here tonight from Toronto Metropolitan University, Humber and Centennial College. Thank you for being with us for this discussion delving into investigative journalism at its best. Journalism that reveals stories in the public interest, holds those in power to account, gives voice to victims and survivors, and affects change. We're grateful for the generosity of our exclusive JTALK series sponsor, TD Bank Group, for making these conversations possible, and our thanks also to our in-kind supporters, CPAC Incision. If you enjoy these talks and would like to support the work of the CJF, you can donate now or at any time on the CJF website. We are delighted to be back with you for a series of JTALK events, both in person and virtual this fall. And I have an upcoming event to share, and we hope you'll join us. On November 2nd, we are right back here at the Toronto Reference Library for a very special book launch. In his posthumously published Above the Fold, A Personal History of the Toronto Star, legendary publisher John Hondrick shares an inside story of operating a newspaper for the benefit of the public. The event, John Hondrick and the Paper for the People, features journalists who work closely with John, including editor emeritus Haroon Siddiqui, investigative journalist Kevin Donovan, and contributing columnist Chantal Hébert. Ticket and related information will be available on the CJF website very soon. And if you'd like to tweet about tonight's conversation, and we hope you do, our hashtag is CJFJTalks. This year, investigative reporting on organized hockey in Canada revealed a toxic culture of sexual misconduct and much more. As a result, Canada's governing body for the sport, Hockey Canada, has been rocked by ongoing crisis and official scrutiny regarding its response to allegations going back to 1989 exposed by rigorous investigative journalism. We're thrilled to be joined tonight by some of the leading journalists who helped bring these stories to light. To moderate our discussion, please welcome CTV News National Correspondent Judy Trin, who's covered important investigations at home and abroad, including the Me Too movement and sexual assault within the music industry. It is an honor to have all of you with us tonight. Thank you everyone for joining us. It's a privilege to be here. Before we get started, let's set the, the stage. Hockey in Canada is part of our nation-building myth. How many of us have not been moved by those commercials? Parents getting up at the crack of dawn, bringing their children to the hockey rink for the love of the game. That type of scenario is more difficult to accept, uh, given what we now know. and. To put it in perspective, over the past few weeks, what we've learned is that there are a number of group sexual assaults that have come to light, allegations at this point, 
We know that there has been a concerted effort by Hockey Canada to, if not cover up, but to protect um, the individuals who have been involved. And these stories would not have come to light without diligent and determined reporting uh, by the, some of the individuals by, before us right now. So we have Rick Westhead, who is with TSN. He's an investigative reporter. He broke this story. Beside him is Katie String with The Athletic, who has given us a very detailed TikTok of who knew what and when. And we have Ken Volden, TSN's executive producer, who has been a backstop and a support uh, in all this reporting. So thank you for joining us tonight. I'd like to begin, uh, first of all, with you, Rick. Tell me, how did the story come about? How did you get this tip? Uh, first, thank you for everybody for coming. It's, uh, it's a little bit humbling to see you know, so many people come out to hear how we sort of, how we do what we do and why we do it. Um, I was, TSN will be broadcasting the World Cup in, Serb, in, uh, in Qatar later this year. And so in the months leading up to that, we're preparing feature stories on some of the players for Team Canada. And I was in Serbia working on a story on the goalie for Team Canada, a profile, and I got a tip. And this person said, you need to take a look at this court filing. It's, uh, it's called EM versus Hockey Canada. It's filed in London, Ontario, and it's going to rock the hockey world. And so I struggled for a couple days to be able to connect over the phone with somebody in the London courthouse. And finally, when I did and navigated, you know, paying for the access to the file and had it sent, um, I remember emailing Ken and our colleagues and saying, yeah, this, brace yourself. Brace yourself. So since that, we've now learned that there was not only the sexual assault of 2018, there was another group, sexual assault 2003, also involving members of uh, uh, the World Juniors. And we learned that through reporting at, by CP, the Globe and Mail, that there are two slush funds uh, used uh, and funded uh, by uh, player registration fees uh, to basically uh, settle these lawsuits. Just before I, we go too much farther, just to, for the record, these are allegations and they've not been proven. These are alleged sexual assaults, both in 2018 and 2003. Let's begin here with um, what we think accountability should look like. First of all, I, Katie, we've been watching uh, the parliamentary committees. We've been watching them uh, question uh, report question uh, Hockey Canada officials. What, what is your sense of what's going on? I think, you know, whenever you cover sexual misconduct, sexual abuse, sexual assault, um, the story always starts pretty narrow, right? You think about the perpetrator, the alleged perpetrator, uh, the alleged victim or complainant in an incident. You focus on that very narrow, specific incident. But invariably, it will always pan out to become um, a story and an, an analysis of institutional protectionism and, and the way in which institutions um, can enable, can protect, 
um, and insulate themselves from accountability, transparency, further scrutiny. And I think today was probably a perfect example of that. Um, we've seen that as a persistent theme throughout the parliamentary hearings, that there seems to be a real reticence um, in terms of being forthcoming and being transparent, and that continued today. Ken, when, when Rick comes to you and says, I have this story, what is your reaction? How do you know as a, uh, a news manager how you're going to treat this story? Well, you know, when you first when he first comes, you don't know how. So you, you say, okay, go do your thing and start start digging, start working on sources, start getting documents. Um, you know, a lot of our reporting is based on court documents and trying to interpret those. So I think it's it's a it's a green light or a not green light uh, for that first step, and then you un you start making plans as to how you're going to roll out our coverage from there, which is you know, in this day and age where we have every platform and, you know, we're partnering with, with our CTV News partners. So it, it, but it really starts with that first tip. What are we doing? What resources are we putting for it? You know, are we stopping doing some other things that Rick would be normally doing and he's going, you know, on this full time? Um, so that's really the first spark is, okay, yeah, green or not. And, you know, Rick and I have a good enough rapport that we go back and forth, and sometimes he brings things to me, and I'm like, okay, like, like no, focus on this. Like, we need to, we need to get focused on, on, on one thing at a time here. Um, but, but that's generally, you know, again, it's green light, or, you know, let's not do that, let's go over here. Walk us through it, Rick. You get the tip. Uh, you go through the courts, and you're looking for the documents. As the documents come to light, what is going through your mind when you are reading the details of this statement of claim? I guess maybe two things. One, don't get anything wrong. And two, I'm thinking about, in that case, I was thinking about how horrible it was. You know, I have a hard time even, if somebody said, well, read to me this statement of claim and what these allegations are, I'm, I, I feel ashamed for the players there about the things that are alleged to have happened in London. And it's hard to go, th to go through and think, you know, about what happened in that hotel room or what is alleged to have happened. I had a hard time, at one point, the, the lawyers for the uh, hockey players showed me text messages between the alleged victim and hockey players and they showed me two videos that, that the, the players took that the lawyers argue, that their lawyers argue, purport to show consent. And I, hard I had a hard time looking at those as well. I, I'm just gonna add something. So I, I think one of the things that I, I you know, admire about, I'm not a, not a, I am not a journalist in the same sense in terms of going out and doing that, but one of the things I, I really admire is, is the ability to focus. And, and I think you know, Rick is able to focus on what the story is. You're dealing with all these things that are not so great and hard to deal with, but you're able to focus on what, and trying to be, again, check your biases, check what we think about what the situation, go with the facts, uncover the facts, you know, be careful, cautious, all of those things go around. So I really think that's a, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, 
yeah, you got to park that to the side and, and really deal with what the evidence is or what, what the story is. As investigative journalists, you go where the evidence leads you. We know that with uh, sexual assault cases, only according to the uh, Canadian Justice, uh, Government of Canada Justice website, only 5% of uh, individuals who experience sexual assault will actually report it. So it is a crime that very few people want to talk about. Katie, you, you dealt with this in and your colleagues at The Athletic dealt with this in creating that timeline, trying to explain what happened. You went back to London. How did you, how did you overcome that hurdle of individuals not wanting to speak to you, but yet you've still needed to tell the story because it was that important? Well, I think the approach that we took and I'd be remiss not to recognize my colleague Dan Rapson is in the audience and um, I, him and I spent some really quality time in London together reporting this story and Ian Mendez has been um, an essential part of our team as well. Um, but the way that we tried to approach it is instead of looking at you know, the proverbial doors being slammed in our face as you know, a barrier, we try to take a very holistic sense of reporting and you know, when you descend upon a town and here within a matter of hours that people know that you're there and they know why you're asking questions and they're you know very resistant to talk about it that becomes part of the story and it's it's an, a necessary essential part of the story because it illustrates some of the systemic deeply entrenched issues um, that permeate hockey culture and hockey communities and that are responsible for you know, many victims of sexual assault and misconduct and abuse um, from feeling comfortable and emboldened to come forward. What is interesting, I think, about your story as I was reading it was the details, right? The hotel, where the security cameras were, uh, who they may have encountered. It's details like this in which, for me, I wonder what more could have been done. Right? Did, did police follow through on that investigation? What did they do exactly before uh, they closed it the first time? Right? Because there, were, there was evidence that could be gathered. I think that was part of the story was holding them to account. Uh, they did an investigation and nothing came of it. So asking them why when clearly um, you know, there's, there's questions about whether they did their jobs well enough. And I think the fact that they have reopened the investigation suggests that there was a more robust, you know, probe or inquiry to be done. And, you know, I think by asking questions and being persistent, and I don't think there's anyone that personifies that more than this guy, um, you know, that keeps institutions and um, law enforcement agencies, it keeps them honest and accountable, and, you know, that's a vital part of our role as journalists. When you first go to Hockey Canada and you seek comment from them, Rick, what was their reaction? Did they push back? I don't remember. I, I don't remember. I, I think it was probably, um, you know, we'll, confirming receipt of your email. I'd love to imagine what happened kind of behind the scenes after that, but I, but I don't know. But I want to correct something Ken said when he said, like, I'm not a journalist in that way. Um, 
Ken and I worked classically trained. Ken and I worked together for eight years at TSN, and I came from like the background of newspapers uh, and, and and learned about digging, and I've learned a ton from Ken. Uh, we live in a time when there's less trust in the media than ever, and often for good reason. You know, media is guilty of chasing the shiny baubles and not really doing, you know, digging in and following through on a story. How many times have we seen stories like this or, or lawsuits or allegations and the media runs to report on a press release from police or someone and then they drop it because we're, they're moving on to the next thing. And, and I, I, don't stop, I haven't stopped learning from him about how to do my job better. And there's a really good example of that even today. I was in Ottawa today for the hearings that hockey, you know, the Hockey Canada hearings, and I was just leaving. I'm literally on the plane. We're on the tarmac. We're about to take off. And I'm getting text messages from a government source who's telling me that, yes, uh, the Canadian government is going to have a full audit of Hockey Canada dating back to 2016. This is a big deal because there's been allegations over the last months that Hockey Canada has been using you know, minor hockey fees from parents across our country to pay for $3,000 championship rings for, not for players, but for members of the board of directors. $5,000 up for you know, dinners for the, for the board, uh, presidential suites and hotel rooms, that it's just been kind of a free-for-all. So this idea of an audit is really important. And as I'm getting ready to leave on the plane, I was, just, I was not 100% sure about the language. And I, I, couldn't, I wanted to post it on social media to be first with this news, because we're in a business that People want to be first. But one of the things that Ken has said to me time and again is, it's great to be first, be right. And so I held off, and I didn't break the story. I, I posted it when I landed, and I thought, OK, good, I got it out. And then I looked on social media, and it was already out. So it was a really good illustration of not being first, because I wanted to be right. But I think that sometimes that's the price that we pay, and it's OK. It's so the public will accept, I think, if you're not first, you're still credible if the people have come to expect and believe that you're going to take the time and you're going to put the work in to make sure that you're right. You mentioned that uh, we in the media are guilty a lot of times of chasing the next shiny thing. Um, you know, I was watching it, uh, the Fifth Estate documentary on Hockey Canada, which you were also part of, Rick, and one of the one of the details that came out was that since 1989, there were at least 15 police investigations involving group sexual assaults of junior hockey players. And one of the things that I wondered immediately was, what if we didn't chase such tiny baubles? What if we, when the stories first came out, what if we, you know, we practice sustained reporting, like we are now, like colleagues from CBC, colleagues from the Globe and Mail, CTV, that everyone now is together, and there is this pressure. Would we have made a difference earlier? And, and what, what is it about that time that we weren't able to bring more attention then and we're, what we're doing now? Well, uh, look, I, I think we all know the narrative, media is, uh, our resources are are uh, not what they used to be, and so you like we're in the position where we have to make choices about what we're covering. Um, you know, there's lots of things that I think we would like to uh, to uh, attack 
but you just, again, you don't have resources. So I think that really comes back to, as, as a society as a whole, do we value journalism? And I, I, think, it, I think I do. We, we believe in it strongly. We think it's a big part of our TSN brand. Um, I can tell you some of uh, our reporting over the last several years. I mean, this just didn't start with this story. I mean, you go back to concussion reporting uh, in, in National Hockey League, um, you know, painkillers, what, whatever it is. You know, we're about to do a, a, a pretty extensive documentary on gymnastics, abuse in gymnastics. Uh, you know, those, those are hard subjects to do and they take lots of resources and, and, and I think they're important. And, and we, like again, we believe it's an important part of our TSN brand. We are the leaders on sports TV, on journalism, and I'll say that without, um, it's my own, our own, my own view, but uh, you know, I, I think that's my worry going forward is we just don't have the, the resources that we, that we once had. And you, you, whether you look at national newspapers in the country or our sports network or, um, you know, it's, it's wonderful. You think of the, the, the birth of the athletic over the last little while and now being taken over by the New York Times, which is we can all recognize as, you know, credible and, and um, so maybe hopeful, but the reality is it takes resources and it, you have to, and we're all in these businesses that you, you have to make returns and you have pressures on that. but but uh, certainly an important part of our society, and, and man, we need to fight for it. Katie, do you think that we've ignored the culture of hockey, the toxicity that exists that enables something like this to happen, these allegations? I mean, collectively, probably yes. I, I think we, all of us could probably do a better job of holding up a mirror to, you know, the stories we tell about our athletes, the way that we put them on pedestals, like the athlete idolatry that, you know, I think all sports publications probably traffic in to some degree. I, I think there is a greater understanding and recognizing um, that that's no longer sufficient, that, you know, to cover sports in a really nuanced, comprehensive, thoughtful way, you can't just be writing about games. You have to be, first of all, treating athletes like human beings um, and not commodities and not assets, but you also have to really closely examine the intersection of sports and all different sorts of social issues, whether that's substance abuse, you know, mental health issues, concussions, sexu you know, sexual abuse. Those are really important elements that are part of the bigger picture. So I'd like to think that we're gaining a better understanding of what it takes to be doing the essential journalism. But, you know, as Ken said, you know, there's a reason that a lot of places don't do this type of work. It takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of work and it's hard. Rick, when we talk about um, these reports, you, um, how, what do you make of the culture? Hockey culture? Hockey culture, sport culture. I, I don't know, I mean, I think, I, I think we for decades have sort of looked at this sport and believed it's something that brings us all together. And I think it's, that's something that we're trying to reconcile right now. What is it about hockey? 
Junior hockey is a, we were talking about this earlier, it's a particular thing where we have 15-year-old boys and we send them off if they're playing in major junior hockey to live with billet families hundreds and thousands, hundreds or thousands of miles away from their homes. And they go into the system where they're 15. I have a son who's 16. I can't imagine a kid a year younger than him playing with and against men who are 20, like full-bearded men. And, you know, maybe men who, when they were 18 and 19, if they were a little bit better, they would have gone on to play professional hockey. And maybe the fact that they haven't, I wonder whether that has contributed to stories that we've heard about, about you know, hazing and initiations, uh, horrible things in junior hockey like that over the years too. So you, know, you asked me what I think about hockey culture. Uh, I'm still trying to get my head around that too. And also reconciling how many great people there are in the sport, honestly. like. I've, we've, I've gone through, my family's gone through a really tough time the last couple of years. We, our son was diagnosed with cancer and he fought and beat lymphoma. And the number of people in hockey who reached out, who I weren't expecting to reach out, uh, you know, with kindnesses was fantastic. So I think maybe both things can be true. You can have great people in the sport, but you can also have some real systemic problems. One of the things that uh, we were discussing earlier about what Sheldon Kennedy has said specifically that, um, that stays with me is when, when the 2018 case surfaces and the 2003, um, there were people on the team that may not have been there but knew something was wrong, but perhaps felt they could not speak up, that uh, they couldn't say something even, even though they knew something was wrong. What, do you have any thoughts as to what we can do in terms of fixing that, enabling the young men who play these sports to feel like they can stand up and not be ostracized? Uh, raise better people. Um, and, and I'm not being flippant about that. I, I just look, as, as we keep bringing things up, as we keep uh, exposing things, as we keep keeping pressure, you know, that, that I, I, I think my, my hope is that eventually it does get better, that, that you see changes in behavior, that you see changes in language, that you see changes in how people treat each other. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, humans are so, are flawed and, and, and we're, we're trying to, you know, I, I thought what Katie said about the system is the system has to be set up so that we can, we can have safe places for people to talk about that. You know, one, one of the, um, you know, you think of the 18 case and, and the idea that, that, you know, some players had walked in and, and, and kind of went, oh, I don't want, you know, I, you know, knowing that they didn't want to be involved, um, the question is why they didn't say anything. But, you know, Sheldon Kennedy, I mean, when that happened, and, and it, even though that was a long time ago, but I think it's relevant, is why didn't somebody say something? And the reality is by, by inch by inch and little bit by little, I think that's becoming more and more likely that somebody would say something. That, you know, just the, the fact that, that Rick got a, a tip on something, the fact that we, you know, we, we you know, and, and Rick, maybe you want to talk about that, but like since we've done this reporting, 
we are inundated with people coming forward and wanting to wanting to talk about this. That that that's the power of what we do, and the power of journalism is that you expose this, and all of a sudden, it becomes okay to talk about it, and it becomes okay to uh, to expose other situations. I mean, uh, you know, and again, Rick has to adjudicate all those and and think about. Again, we can't do every story, and we can't. You'd like to you'd like to be supportive of that, but but I think that's a real part of that is the, the very fact of doing these stories begets other stories coming forward and 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 a less less of everything's in the closet and and come forward. Is that Rick? How the two thousand and three case came forward to you? Yep. Somebody picked up the phone and called. I, I, this is really hard work. It is. I, I couldn't have. Um, I couldn't have understood before how, how challenging it would be to be on the phone and having somebody share with you, you know, the fact that they had been sexually assaulted. I've got no training for this. Um, you know, my, Katie's one of my biggest supports. Like, her, her and I will talk all the time about some of the, hard, the, the difficulties of this and, and the strain, the strain of, you know, the, the pain of saying no to people who want you to tell their story for whatever reason, you know, if it's not a Canadian, if there's not a sports angle, you know, so you listen and, you know, you say, I'm, I'm really sorry about what's happened to you, but this is not a fit for, for what I do, you know. Um, it's, that's, that's the really hard part about it. But, the, you know, the, the, another, not, don't mean to ramble, just again, for people to understand how this works though, like we've got, I'm really proud of what we're doing at TSN. When I have a story and I bring it forward, it goes to an editor named Darren York. And even though I'm the face on TSN of our stories, it's literally like a team effort. It goes to Darren York, who used to be an editor at the Globe and Mail, and he's fantastic. And he some days leaves me knocking my head against the wall <laughs> because he's like, nope, you got to get back. You got to do more. You got to go do, do more reporting. You need this. What about this? What about that? And these pages come back all marked up with red. And I'm like, oh my God, like, let's come on, let's go. <laughs> and then after it gets through Darren, then it goes to Steve Dryden, who's the head of our hockey content. And it's the same process all over again. Instead, although instead of using red, Steve's used blue. <laughs> so now it's like black, red, blue, black, you know, all the way through the story. And then when it finally makes it through them, you know, then Ken will take a look at it. And that's a roll of the dice, how that is going to go. <laughs> and then after Ken, then Peter Jacobson, our lawyer, looks at it. And for the most part, yeah, we're pretty good with Peter. But, uh, you know, there have been days when he's like, no, you need to do this, or you need to ask this, or phrase this differently. So, you know, you go on your phones right now, and you pop up TSN's website, and you see our latest story. And it's like, oh, that, you know, none of this gets thrown together. It's I've worked in multiple news organizations, and what I'm proud to say about TSN is it's rigorous. The pushback and the editing and these colleagues who are demanding me to be my best and to do our best job at telling these stories, it's, uh, I, I feel good about that. Let's, Katie, let's unpack that a little bit in terms of the sensitivity of these stories. How do we, how do you deal with um, the complainants who come forward? Like, what, what do you have to do to put them at ease, to, uh, to reassure them that uh, their story is safe? So 
My first foray into investigative journalism was I covered the Larry Nasser case for us at The Athletic. Um, I'm an American, so and I live in Michigan. I went to Michigan State. I was a competitive gymnast growing up. Um, so to put it into context for anyone that's not familiar, Larry Nasser is you know a disgraced former USA gymnastics team physician who um, sexually abused hundreds of um, young girls and women under the guise of legitimate medical practices. So I spent probably the better part of a year on that story and had no idea what I was doing or truly what I was in for um, emotionally, journalistically, etc. cetera. Um, and it was, it left such an indelible imprint on me because, you know, sometimes on your kind of shittiest hardest assignments. Um, you learn the most, you meet wonderful people despite harrowing circumstances. Um, and it taught me so many things. You know, the power of um, victims and survivors using their voice, the power of, you know, solidarity amongst survivors. And, you know, you talk about stories beginning stories, like courage can be very contagious. And, um, to witness that was very powerful, like it, it was very inspiring. It, it changed for me like what I wanted to do for work because it felt very difficult but purpose-driven. Um, and I would say, you know, one really wonderful luxury that I had is, you know, the lead detective and the lead prosecutor on that case um, were, went about the prosecution and the investigation in a trauma-informed way. And so they educated themselves on, you know, trauma-informed investigation techniques and interview techniques. And even through, you know, just covering the case, uh, you would learn some of that, right? And, and that can be something as small as, you know, victims are, sexual assault is about power and, and the loss of control. So you wanna, if you want to have, you know, an empathetic, compassionate conversation with someone that's talking about a very difficult thing, you want to give them some control back. So what is a setting that would work for you? Do you want to do this in a neutral space? Would you like to do this in your home, a coffee shop that makes you feel comfortable? You know, understanding that, you know, trauma rewires your brain and has a physiological effect. So you might remember events in a nonlinear fashion. You might be able to, um, capture really small, seemingly inconsequential details and some of those larger moments that might seem vital to a timeline or a sequence of events might be really, really difficult for you to conjure or summon. And so I think this is a circuitous way of me saying, you know, that being my real first introduction into investigative reporting, it was also an introduction into trauma-informed reporting in trying to report with compassion and empathy. One of the things that, um, in my own reporting, that I found that is difficult to reconcile, and, and perhaps you, you'll have similar experiences, is that you will tell someone, and you will interview them, and you'll put them in your story because you do believe them but at that point their stories are allegations. And even something as the choice of words can be very painful. You know, when um, we don't want to call them victims, we call them survivors. 
but in the initial stages, if they would come forward and speak to you when you're writing their story on down, you, you refer to them as a, a woman or a complainant, but you, you're hesitant to use that word survivor because that already assumes that an incident that is only an allegation at this point is a fact. And something like that can be really painful. Um, I, how, what have you learned in terms of the individuals coming forward to you, Rick? Like, do, do you think that they expect, you know, they, they want justice, they want something, but it's hard for us to deliver. How do you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, I, I did a lot of reporting last year on a story of a former NHL player named Kyle Beach and on his, sex, his alleged sexual assault uh, you know, by his former coach. And once we did that reporting, the floodgates really opened. And literally, there have been hundreds of people who've reached out and wanted to share their stories. Sometimes it's just to say, I want to tell you what happened to me. And it's not for a story. But one of the, one of the things I've learned along the way on this is None of us are perfect reporting, right? Um, there's a lot of great reporters in this space right now. Katie's like best in class at doing this. The story on Hockey Canada, the Globe and Mail has been fantastic. Grant Robertson and Colin Fries have had a couple like bang up great stories on that have educated Canadians about the you know funds that have been used to pay off um, lawsuits and allegations related to, to sexual assault. But what I've learned is it's okay to be wrong. You know, um, as an example, and what I mean by that, as an example, when I did the story, the first story on this, on the 2018 case, one of the phrases I used in my story was non-consensual sex. Again, I'm, I don't have any um, training in this. And I had people emailing me, texting me, I don't know how they got my phone number, texting me, sending me message on, messages on social media, Shame on you, you know, shame on you for using that. This is not sex, this is sexual assault. And you, if you're gonna do this kind of coverage, you need to do better. And I confess my first instinct was to kind of be like, you know, give me a break. I'm doing my best here. But instead I said, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that I've upset you through that language. I'm gonna make a real effort moving forward to use different language and to learn from my friends and peers who you know, are more experienced at doing this than I am. And so that's one of the things I've learned. It also speaks to the amount of time and that you're not rushing, that you are you know, taking the time to talk to other, so you're not only investing in the story, but then you're also taking time to talk to experts in the field to get terminology right, to, to, to learn ourselves what we should do. And also, again, check some of our bias, um, our, that internal bias that makes us use language, language that we've used our whole entire lives. And then you, we just, it just rolls out of our tongue. Like, you know, just on Monday, again, I was talking to our editorial group saying, you know, it is, it is, a, it is a fun to, to settle un, uh, insurance claims. Stop using other terminology for what this is, because we want to be factually correct. And, and any other use of terms leads people where, I, 
I don't. I think we should be clean on on that language. So I think language. I mean, we talk a lot about language uh, and and what language we use. There's a there's a great article that I come back to at least twice a year. It's called Against Allegedly. It's written by Diana Moskovitz, who's done terrific work in this space. When she wrote it, she was working for Deadspin. She is now an investigative editor and contributor at um, Defector. But it essentially unpacks like how often we, as the media, revert to this like sort of legalese and often really loaded language. So accuser, allegedly, um, you know, describing what a victim, an alleged victim was wearing, et cetera. Um, see, I just used alleged right there. So, um, but, but it unpacks like sort of the, the, the implications of the language that we use and the way that it can frame a story. And so it really, you know, requires you to thoughtfully interrogate how you use language and how you deploy that in a way that's thoughtful, accurate, sometimes clinical, um, but that people can understand. So, you know, one thing that we try to use, I try to use this whenever we can is, you know, I, I try not to ever use the word accuser, you know? For this case, like with um, the 2018 allegations, we almost always use the young woman, right? You want to center someone's humanity. Um, this is not, you know, someone that just appears on a police report or in a lawsuit. This is a human being whose life is uh, most certainly being impacted on a daily basis by that. So it's a good reminder just that language matters and it's incumbent upon us to get it right and be very precise. Another thing, another thing I've learned recently is to challenge the way we do things. Um, this week, we had a trailer that went up online on TSN for this documentary on gymnastics and the culture of Canadian gymnastics. And the trailer came out whatever morning it was. And the people who are in the documentary, the, uh, the women, have been really anxious about this. And so they came and they asked our team, can we see the trailer before you put it out there publicly? And I can tell you, the immediate response in my mind was no, we don't do that. Journalists do not, sh we don't show our work to anyone before it's ready for the public. Because that's how we've always done it. And in the end, I think you know, we had a discussion and we talked about, well, if we show them on Zoom, this trailer at 10 o'clock at night and it's going out tomorrow morning at eight, and they understand that there is no changes, it's done, the trailer, there, there's nothing to be, that's going to be edited, is it going to hurt for them to be able to see this so they can process it before it goes out? And I know this would probably be something that not all journalists would agree with, and that's fine, but we made the decision to show them. And you know, I stand by it. I think it was the right thing to do, to give them 12 hours to kind of go through this in their mind and unpack it and also settle their nerves a little bit, you know, the night before it came out the next morning. I wouldn't do that the same way with like a long investigative story, but again, saying we, we're doing this because it's always been done that way, maybe, that, maybe it's time to rethink things like that. And I, I do think it, you know, one of your jobs as a journalist, especially when you're reporting on something incredibly sensitive like that, is to prepare the person um, that might not be as savvy or sophisticated in dealing with the media or have any idea what to expect you know, when a story comes out is to prepare them. 
that you know you might to to share so publicly something that is obviously very painful and traumatic can leave you feeling so vulnerable and exposed. And even if you get 99% positive feedback, um, you know, you're gonna need some time to sort of decompress and probably establish some boundaries from random people that might be reaching out or family members that didn't know. And you know, I do think it's incumbent upon us to prepare people for worst case scenario about you know, potential litigation, defamation suits, um, their character getting dragged through the mud. Um, but even some of the you know, more positive byproducts can be really, really overwhelming for people. I, one thing that I don't think people realize is when you come forward and disclose abuse, assault, et cetera, like, it is really common for people, complete strangers, to reach out and to share their own experiences with that. I mean, Sheldon Kennedy, Theo Fleury have both talked about you know, how overwhelming that phenomenon was for them. And, you know, if you're not a trained mental health professional, you're not necessarily equipped to deal with that, like, consistent, perpetual offloading of trauma. In this reporting, another thing that has struck me is just the, the massive power imbalance, right? So um, some of the reporting in terms of the, uh, the 2018 woman, what she said was that uh, there were videos taken of her. And then after reporters came forward and reported the details in the uh, statement of claim, then you have Hockey Canada's lawyers bringing, showing certain reporters this video showing that there was consent. When that is happening to you, when you are being shown this video of a woman, uh, and I'll use alleged here, allegedly consenting, do you feel like you're being spun? I have not seen the video, so I'm going to defer to Rick on this. Of course you're being spun. The lawyers are saying, you know, I remember watching those videos, and the lawyers were saying, you can, you know, you can see that she's consenting, right? You can see that she's smiling, right? They're doing their jobs. I mean, there has to be a certain, I mean, I. I, I have a healthy amount of cynicism, um, and I think you go into that knowing what, it, understanding what's happening here. The lawyers are, are representing um, those players, and and you have to understand that going in. What, and it, again, it goes back to human behavior. Is understanding what what's happening here. Can you can you figure out why why would somebody do this? And I, I would talk about that. Like, why would they do that? Like. Things that just you would think, uh, why would any human being do that? But, but, but they do, and so you got to park again. You got to park that thinking about any uh, assuming something and and strip it all down and just go with the facts. What's what's happening here? Why would they do this? Um, and but it's hard because you're dealing with things that aren't that they're not great. Obviously. Did you want to add something, Rick? You're restraining yourself. This still makes me a little bit nervous. <laughs> I, mean, I guess I think, uh, you know, criminal defense lawyers, are, it's, the job description does not include helping journalists search for the truth, right? They're showing us videos because they've got a job to do, and their job is to try to help 
their clients either avoid being charged or if they are charged, help them to be acquitted. And you go into that wise, eyes wide open. Let's talk about that. Knowing that, you know, that's a job of a criminal defense lawyer, Hockey Canada is undergoing another investigation, we have Halifax police investigating, we have London police investigating. Where do you think we will get, first of all, I'll start this, do you think that this time police will be investigating this matter in London much more diligently? I think that's safe to assume, given the fact that there's such an intense level of scrutiny on this case. I would love to say that I think that happens for all cases, but the reality is there are a lot of eyeballs on this case in particular, and so I think there will be a much more robust investigation than perhaps we saw the first time around. The reality is we don't know much about the contours of the investigation as it happened at the time. You know, this is one thing that's slightly frustrating for me as an American, is we have um, Canadian law is much more restrictive in terms of access to information, particularly as it relates to law enforcement agencies and investigations. Um, so there's still quite a bit unknown about this investigation um, that I think we would all like a bit more transparency on. So, but you know, one of, the, one of the fascinating things that we found in our reporting when we were in London was just a matter of months before these allegations um, surfaced, the London Police Department had to overhaul the way in which it investigated sexual assaults because, um, again, just terrific dogged watchdog journalism by Robin Doolittle in her Unfounded series found you know, a disproportionate amount of um, cases that were investigated by the London Police Service did not um, get appropriately adjudicated or reach a formal resolution um, that was way out of whack in, in terms of numbers compared to other provinces, other cities and such. Um, so you know, for us that was really important context to put into our story so that people could understand, you know, there were some things sort of happening um, within the department even. There was some transition, there was some overhaul, there was, you know, some efforts to do things differently because perhaps they had not been done appropriately in the past. What about from the Hockey Canada perspective? What needs to be done? Uh, what kind of questions will you be asking, Rick? as they, in terms of this internal investigation that they're going through, this third party investigation, what, what should, what questions should this third party investigator answer? Um, there's a million questions Hockey Canada needs to answer still. Um, you know, I've been asking them, I was looking back through my emails, I've been asking them questions about this since 2016. This is not new. Um, you know, just generally, where we are in terms of like best practices, in terms of sports in Canada and keeping athletes and coaches and everybody safe, organizations now disclose um, the names of people who are sanctioned and can't be involved in sports anymore. Figure Skating Canada, Gymnastics Canada, 
Athletics Canada. Athletics Canada, even on its website, will publish, publish the investigative reports after they've done so-called safe sport investigations, right? So transparency, how many times are we going to hear that word? And many of the NSOs, national sport organizations, and even many of the provincial sport organizations are being open with the public about this. Hockey Canada is not. Historically, how many coaches, how many players, how many administrators have been banned from being involved in hockey? None of us here have the right to know that because Hockey Canada won't share that information. And when you contrast that behavior with what others are doing, like the other organizations I just mentioned, it just leads to more questions. Why? Why wouldn't you do this? It's the most well-funded, powerful sports organization in Canada. And the platitudes are there. They say they want to be the best in class. But do the deeds back up the words? Can Hockey Canada officials have been on the hot seat? Uh, we've seen them squirm in Parliament uh, under questioning. What, what do you make of their answers that they've given? Do you, do you buy what they're selling? I mean, my first instinct when you say that, that's not really my job to say whether I buy them or not. I would say when I look at deeds and actions, we talk about that a lot. Well, you know, how are they, are they being transparent? And again, some of that is, some of that is my own internal bias as we've, as we've done a lot of reporting um, through, the, through the years. And when I think of, you know, we asked, uh, you know, I don't know, Give me the time frame, Rick, and keep me honest here. But we asked a simple question to all the NSOs about um, how many race-related complaints had they received from the NSOs. And uh, we got a lot of responses, responses back and, and didn't, didn't get full transparency from some NSOs. So it, but as, as I think back to that, that, you start thinking, like, again, they're not being transparent. They just, they just don't, they, they will not seem to want to deal with what is the issue, which I, I believe is transparency. You know, spins forward to things like Sport Canada and, and, and the systematic that we're, that we're dealing with. Um, so I, I sit there and, and whether I believe them or not, um, they're being, you know, I thought the, fr the first hearing was pretty, pretty rough and um, yeah, I, it's not for me to believe them or not. I, I look for what they're saying, and then we find out what they said, and then we go, okay, well, let's check those facts and, and see what, and, and again, we've, even this week, we've, you know, they say one thing, and then we find out, well, no, there's a court document or something, which is, again, goes back to some of the frustration in the Canadian system that we don't have the same access um, to be able to check those things, but, but that's immediately what goes through my head. It's like, okay, file that away, like, and then, and then, let's let's check that, let and and keep them honest going forward as as we go forward, um, because there's a ton of there's a ton left to do on this story. Uh, again, mentioned Sport Canada and what their what their role and how what how what power do they have to force NSOs to act in a certain way in the best public interest of our of our of our, everybody, not just elite hockey players. Katie, what is it ultimately going to take? Is it going to, who is going, what is going to ultimately be responsible 
for Hockey Canada to change its culture, to, to develop a plan going forward that will protect uh, the safety and integrity of the sport and the players and the people around it? I'm a big believer in, you know, also deeds and actions, not words. So I would say what our reporting would indicate and what Hockey Canada's actions would indicate is that public outcry, parliamentary scrutiny, federal oversight, um, I do not think that is going to be enough to spark meaningful change. Um, I hate to be so cynical, but I think likely the only thing that could spark serious change is if they feel they're in jeopardy of losing corporate dollars. So taking away sponsorships. That's right. Rick, you feel that way too, that ultimately it's going to be the money that speaks? How many times have we heard the phrase, follow the money? And Hockey Canada makes a lot of its revenue from corporate partnerships. You know, we've seen companies like Scotiabank pause their relationship with Hockey Canada, and they're sort of taking more of a 30,000-foot view of what's happening right now. Well, Scotiabank just this week has a new CEO. Uh, I would love to know what his perspective is on this and whether he believes... Let's get on that. <laughs> and what he believes in terms of, you know, is it the right time for us to start marketing our relationship and putting up Scotiabank's brand and image next to Hockey Canada? When is that going to be the right time? One of my, I guess, frustrations is even in terms of how we phrase this conversation because, again, when I, when I think of Hockey Canada, I, I, I was, both my kids played hockey. I coached for over a decade. Uh, I played when I was a kid, so, so I come at this um, be, from being a person that was inside this, the system. Um, but there's, again, when we talk about Hockey Canada, what are we talking about? Are we talking about amateur sport across the country? Are we talking about that small band up there that gets all the attention and all the, all the notice? And so when, when you say, what's it going to take? Um, you know, sponsorship is like, feels like that's a heavy hand. But, you know, again, parents have choices about what they're going to put their kids in and do they feel safe and, and that, that, my, my worry about, about the sport in general and sports in general is, is this erosion of trust and this erosion of the, of the good things that can happen. So, uh, you know, I don't think that's an immediate thing. That I, uh, I agree that, spo that sponsorship is a, is a big hammer, but, you know, I, I worry long term about, about the erosion of just numbers of kids playing a sport that, uh, and, and whatever sport, basketball, soccer, it really doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, but you know, I do worry ab about the erosion of, of families' trust in being part of, of a sport. Um, I think that's a prof we don't talk about that enough, that profound change in how we think about society. You know, I think Ken's making a really critical distinction here, which is important in the greater context of truly like the existential crisis that Hockey Canada is facing, is it's not quite clear to me like what Hockey Canada purports to be or wants to be, right? I think there seems to me to be a fundamental tension between 
you know, some of the more core values that are traditionally found within national governing bodies, national sports organizations, which is to, you know, cultivate healthy relationships, to, you know, build confidence in team building amongst young kids and, and engage kids in healthy activity and to protect their safety and well-being. And then I think on the other side, we have seen, you know, some, and not just Canadian NSOs, but certainly this is the case with, you know, gymnastics in the States, but like there's been an incredible emphasis on like clout chasing, seeking medals, seeking, you know, acclaim versus, you know, really the core mission of what an amateur governing body should be about. And I think we're really seeing that disconnect amplified in these, in these hearings in particular. I know um, it is uh, 7.30, and I know that there are audience members who would like to ask questions of our panelists. Um, on the side of the room, you will see two microphones. If you have a question, please venture up to those microphones, introduce yourself, give your name and the organization you're with, and uh, ask your question. Um, so please, go ahead. Hi, my name is uh, Rick Craig. I'm just an interested uh, person. I've been a hockey guy all my life. Two questions. One has to do with the um, player interviews. I remember reading when the story broke that there would likely be interviews of all the players to determine who was involved. My question is, has that happened? And secondly, do you ever think names will come out of players that were involved? Because in my view, that would be a great deterrent to future incidents happening if a person's name came out as being involved. Thanks. Um, thank you for your questions. Because the allegations are so serious and grave, um, and because this is a bit of an atypical case in the sense that the defendants were unnamed, they were John Doe defendants, so there's not this sort of like baseline of public records identifying defendants, which is more typically the case. It is a very high journalistic bar to clear to be able to print those names, even if you feel with a high degree of confidence that your reporting um, has allowed you to narrow down those names. Um, there are reasons why, you know, that, that it takes a lot to be able to, you know, pass through a legal review and get that to print. I would be surprised to see those names surface absent any discipline or formal charges. Um, which brings me back to your original question, which is, um, you know, player interviews. I think probably all of us, among the more confounding revelations of the first set of hearings, was that Hockey Canada made it entirely optional for players to participate in the Henning Hutchinson investigation. So because of that, you know, a scant number of uh, players actually did participate. You know, we are now seeing more rigorous investigations that are also uh, incentivizing players to participate um, because there are consequences for them if they do not. So our indications are that, you know, players are participating in these 
interviews because they know that the National Hockey League, Hockey Canada, um, and the police are you know, expecting a, a different level of participation and that there could be adverse consequences if they do not. Uh, thank you very much. I, I'm not a journalist, I'm a psychologist, but I think what CJF does in these talks is wonderful. Here's my question. Um, if we could move out to the bigger culture question. Uh, by the way, I don't even, I don't play hockey, I don't care about hockey, but I care about sports. And I wonder if, whether it's TSN or any organization, when something like this blows up in a, a lovely country like Canada, do you ever go, and you probably don't have the time to do this, to look at other countries where this may not happen as frequently? Is that, is that a, a, a silly question? Because I'm starting to wonder you know, is this just how sports, things that happen in sports? And I mean, we read today, Rowing Canada is now going to be under the microscope. Can, you know, but are there places on our planet where highly competitive national sports organizations don't fall into this pit? Well, my, my, my first... Uh my first instinct to answer the question is, the fact that things are coming forward is a good thing. Like the, the, the fact that there are, um, and, and look, it does feel like an avalanche, and I know we've talked a lot about it is, you know, between our gymnastics story, there was the National Women's Soccer Team, Hockey Canada, you know, we're dealing with a lot of those. But, but again, I, I, I actually think that's a, a, maybe a good sign that there is outlets for these people to talk about that. Um, I don't know the statistics worldwide in terms of other countries. You know, you, you read, certainly our neighbors to the south uh, have had all kinds of problems, whether in the professional leagues and, for, you know, uh, the NFL with uh, the Sean Watson, Watson case was high profile and, and I think had pretty profound consequences for how people view the sport. Um, so. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think any time that there's a lot of people coming forward, that is that is a that is a that, that's a positive thing, that there's a system by which they can they they can come forward and maybe change does happen, and I and I and I do think that there is some momentum. I mean, we we talked a lot about about you know the next shiny toy and what's the next thing that's going to come up and does it divert our attention away from what is an important story, but. You know, I'd, I'd like to think that, that you know, certainly, uh, you know, we're, we're pretty incentivized to, to help change the culture of sport in Canada, and I think that's part of it, is that people feel comfortable coming forward. Thank you. Uh, my name is Fernando. I'm a journalism student at Homer College, and here's my question. Uh, as sports fans and also journalists, uh, how do you feel to disclose these scandals? And after disclosing them, if it changes your, how, how the way you see, the way you view sports? 
I think just as journalists, our, our views of sports have, have changed pretty dramatically since we were you know, cheering as fans. Um, I, I don't know if there's any answer for that other than yes, of course. You know, you're, you're in pretty regular, the, 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 when you're doing investigative reporting like, like we do, often the emails that you're sending to teams are kind of adversarial, I guess, is the way the teams would see those. So for sure, it's, it's changed, you know, my perspective on it. I, I haven't covered a story on baseball for years, so I'm actually loving watching the Blue Jays now because it's got, <laughs> it's got nothing to do with my work life, which is really, really nice, and, you know, my kids like it. But, uh, yeah, the answer is yes, it does change. But it's great you're in, keep going through with the journalism. I'm actually teaching at Humber now, and maybe I'll have you as a student in the, mm -hmm. in the spring. But, uh, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Tamaru. Um, I'm a freelance basketball writer, and I just had a very specific question for Rick. Um, so you said um, you know you got access to the videos and the text messages um, from the defense lawyers, and I was just wondering, is that um, were you able to access that be through like a Freedom of Information Act, or is it based on the trust that you? like have in the community like I'm just wondering like how you were able to uh, get access to that information uh, the lawyer the lawyers called me and asked if I wanted to see the videos and so the, the defense lawyers the defense lawyers yeah and so you know the defense lawyers they're gaming it out a little bit which journalists do, who's who has the big reach who do we think we can probably work with and get them to see our perspective, at least to some degree? And, uh, you know, they, you know, Robin Doolittle saw the videos as well and did this reporting for the Globe. And we did it for the, you know, for TSN. There's, even, even though we were saying earlier about how fast media is changing, there's still reason for optimism. There's still really great reporters in Canada. You know, Laura Ewing at Canadian Press reports on this topic as well. Uh, and does a great job. My buddy Rob Cribb with the Toronto Star, he's in the back. Um, he does great investigative reporting. So this, you know, discipline is alive and well, and it's still being invested in. Maybe not the way it used to be, but, you know, there's still fantastic reporters around Canada. Hi, I'm also not a journalist. Um, thank you for your words uh, tonight. My name is Megan Hall-Jacquin. I am a partner at Howie Sachs & Henry, a personal injury law firm based in Toronto, and I represent Amelia Klein and uh, the class action against Gymnastics Canada and the provincial member associations. Um, hearing you just uh, just makes me want to say uh, that I, I thank you for doing your job well, um, for allowing survivors to have a voice. And I believe that what you're doing, uh, shining light on, on, this, on these issues will affect change. And so in terms of a question, you know, Katie, you had mentioned about the funding with uh, Hockey Canada. Do you think that your work is going to help with this institutional change that I think certainly the lawsuit is seeking to you know, to pursue, and, and, and I believe that you're a part of that, but to what extent do you believe that the work you're doing is gonna help with that institutional change at sports across Canada? Thank you for the work that you do and for those kind words. We don't always hear those a ton. Um, so 
as reporters, I, I think we try to approach um, stories not in an outcome determinative way. So we don't, you know, approach stories in terms of trying to reach an objective, um, trying to necessarily even change the culture. You know, the fundamental baseline for our job is to inform people and to hopefully illuminate. Um, you know, certain dynamics, certain incidents, certain institutional barriers, et cetera. I, I think I'd probably speak for both of us that, you know, one of the best compliments that you can get as a journalist is when someone um, either comes up to you and, and shares that, you know, either reading, reading a story or having talked to you for a story, they saw their experience reflected in the work and they felt seen, their voice felt heard. Um, so I think, you know, we strive to do that, to inform the public, to make sure that people who, whose voices are not always traditionally amplified um, have the means by which to do so. You know, it's incumbent upon us to listen and verify and, um, you know, not just amplify without doing the work to to check allegations and to corroborate stories and such. Um, but you know, I think if there's any area where our work will make maximum impact, it's that you know, these institutions know that we're watching and that we're not going anywhere. So if for nothing else, um, you know, they at least, I think, can expect to be held accountable for their actions because we will be following. I think there is too, like when I think of our, our story on, uh, we did a, a fairly large story on, on the use of Toradol in, in professional sports. And, you know, we had a lot of, you know, Rick got a lot of correspondence from players saying, you know, thank you for just informing them about, uh, you know, just not even thinking about the long-term health. Um, so, you know, it's like these little increments of change. And when you, when you start pulling at threads, you don't really predict where it's going to go, but it could be as simple as some, you know, some player that's questioning, well, hang on here, maybe I shouldn't be doing this um, because, we, because we obviously know it leads to some pretty nasty long-term health um, I issues um, where it, or it can. Um, so I, I, it's not, you know, it's not, I, I think Katie said it well, you're not going with this goal, but you certainly, I, I think it is aspirational that, you're, that, that we are, Part of what, what our jobs is is trying to hold people accountable and, and to to make that change. But it some it happens sometimes in small little increments that you don't even notice until maybe maybe the change happens. Go ahead. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Dan Diamond, and I am a semi-retired uh, uh, hockey uh, historian, statistician, and publisher. And um, I have. A couple of questions. The first is, I noted with great interest once the story broke, um, players through their agents or lawyers who were on that 2018 team, uh, uh, many of them came out and said, I wasn't there, didn't go to that party that night, it wasn't me. And of course, so then you start ticking them off and you've got those who said that and those who didn't say that. So my question is, um, at the level of discussion and gossip and knowledge and whatnot, how many people do you think actually know? who was there and who, who, who didn't, who wasn't there. 
Hockey Canada people, police, uh, other guys on that team. And then my second question is, uh, TSN has succeeded over the last 30 years in making the World Juniors uh, their premier showcase event, uh, uh, a highlight of the holiday season, and obviously a big money spinner for the network. Do you think the network fears that all of this will take some of the luster off that, uh, uh, impact sponsorship dollars and viewership? Thank you. That's a Ken question. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'll answer the second question first. Um, look, in sports TV, uh, sports TV is all about emotion. Uh, and, and if I wasn't speaking in front of journalism people, if I was speaking in another context, I would go into a, a wonderful, uh, and, and Rick knows this well, uh, passionate talk about what's great about sports TV. And, and, and that because it, it, it makes us feel something. I'm mad, I'm sad, I hate this team, I <laughs> cheer for them. I'm, I, I mean, that is, that is ultimately what we are trying to do when we, when, when we, uh, when we have um, uh, sports on TV. And look, I, the World Juniors is a, is, a, is a unique Canadian thing to a certain extent, although it's starting to get a lot more prevalent in other parts of the world. Um, it's over Christmas, it's family, it's, it's uh, and so, yeah, we, we've managed to build that in, in quite frankly, in, in partnership with Hockey Canada um, into a, uh, a pretty major television property. Um, and yes, our business is affected by this story. Um, and, and, you know, we're not sure where this is going to go. But I can tell you, again, that the separation of church and state that happens at, at TSN um, we are allowed to do our work that goes on with this and, and make sure it's right and we're cautious. Uh, but our, you know, I have, you know, as high as everyone's got bosses and I have bosses and, and people like Stu Johnson who, um, you know, is, you know, in charge of all revenue for all the Bell Media. So you can imagine uh, the pressure on him on a daily basis, but, but um, you know, supportive, understands what we're trying to do. Um, but yeah, it, it absolutely will have an effect on the very thing that we, we built. Uh, it's a unique position for us to be in, um, to be reporting on a subject. But I say that's unique, but I mean, again, we've reported on a lot of things on the National Hockey League. We, we have sub-Olympic rights through CBC and we show gymnastics. And, and I mean, it just, that's sort of what we do. And so I, I um, you know, but that, that church and state is a, an important aspect of how we are able to do what we do. I can take the first question or take a stab at it. Um, you know, I think one of the defining characteristics of hockey culture is that it's tremendously insular. And so I think it would take a real stretch of the imagination to assume that players on that team do not know exactly who and who were not involved. As it relates to Hockey Canada, I think that's a really interesting question. I think one of the more perplexing elements of, again, those that first set of parliamentary hearings was, you know, this revelation that they did not make players participate and that they purported to not know who the individuals involved were. I think that the reason for that has, look, I, I don't think 
if they want to know who was involved, they would be able to find out who was involved. So I think that's either a deliberate indifference or they explicitly chose not to know. Hi, I'm Brody Fenlon, and I work for CBC News. I'm curious about you as journalists. You're confronting a lot of trauma head on. You are, Rick, you've described watching video. I'm sure that lives with you. How do you, how do you manage your own well-being, your own mental health when you're dealing with this kind of stuff? And does, do your employers support you? Do you have these conversations in the newsroom about mental health and well-being? I mean, for me, I, uh, I've got, like, Ken is an awesome boss and friend, and he's, I, I hit the jackpot, honestly. <laughs> I've got amazing colleagues and friends, like Katie and I talk all the time. I play hockey in the mornings when I can, which is a great outlet. Um, you know, the truth is, like, if I'm being completely honest with you, the truth is there are days this feels like a walk in the park. Like a year ago, I was reporting on Kyle Beach from 8A of SickKids Hospital, watching my son have five different kinds of chemo put into his arm, and I'd be whispering with the lights off and the nurses coming in to do checks. I was doing my reporting on a laptop. There's nothing like that. And so now, you know, I think if your family's healthy, the stuff that you, from, I'm just speaking for myself now, the stuff that we're navigating through with work um, there's tough days, and there's days you cry, and there's days you call your, your friends for support. But just for me personally, I'm just so happy, uh, just generally speaking. I, I know this isn't what we're talking about, but I'm just so happy about him that everything else is kind of relative. I do appreciate you asking that, though, um, just because I do think it is important, especially for news outlets, to realize that you know vicarious and secondary trauma is a real Thing. Um, I had a really uh, kind of dark time after covering the Nasser case. It was really difficult, um, probably just because it, there were a lot of it hit close to home. I had some teammates that were victims. Um, my gymnastics coach went to um, jail for misconduct, sexual misconduct. I went to Michigan State. I was a new mom and probably like very hormonal and um, emotional at the time to begin with. So that case hit me really, really hard, and it like took a family member saying, hey, I, I think you need to probably talk to someone about this. Um, and it was like the healthiest uh, decision I've ever made, probably professionally. It's, um, you know, for how shitty my husband like unloads our dishwasher, like I never bitch about my husband to my therapist. Um, it is almost exclusively about work. Um, she is probably against her will so well informed about every sports scandal that like <laughs> spans our site. Um, but she's really wonderful about helping me put things into perspective. Like Rick is already really <laughs> adept at doing, um, and helping me, you know, come up with healthy coping mechanisms. Which is, you know, you got to try to strike a balance in in your personal life, not bring work home, which is hard for me. You know, I have two young kids. Um, you know, exercise, being with friends that aren't in this business. Um, like Rick, I'm really lucky. Um, our publication is wonderful, not just about 
really showing us that they value our work um, and supporting that work, but also really um, being supportive in prodding me to take time off or if I've covered a difficult story to just go like look at memes of cute puppies for a while. And um, I just have like just wonderful, tremendous coworkers. I mean, Dan Robson has been such um, a stalwart for me in, in you know, <laughs> being a bit of a therapist and I can always go to him um, to talk about things. And I think, you know, when you have Ian Mendez as well, we have a wonderful investigative editor. Um, so I think when you have solidarity either from your own coworkers or colleagues who, you know, even though we're pretty fierce competitors, um, but we're also very dear friends. And I think seeing the bigger picture, feeling driven by purpose in your work, um, ultimately, like, reader, readers get that. I think they can see that reflected in the quality of your work, that you care. Um, and so having people around you that can support you even when it's hard. I think we have time for one more question. Please go ahead. Hi, my name is Hasina. I'm a journalism student at Toronto Met. Um, what is one thing or something you think that regular hockey fans or sport fans can do to help, um, to help prevent these issues or to help, especially also because um, a lot of the people, there's no names, so it's hard for sports fans to not support certain players because we don't know, we don't have any names, so what's something we can do? Uh, good question. Uh, <clears throat> uh, throw support with your wallet, um, you know, and, and, and that's not necessarily a, a simple thing to do as we think about how do we what do we support? What we, you know, it goes back to sort of what we said about about just even even putting our kids into a sport. How do we, how, you know, are we? I, I think back. I was going to make the point about about Sheldon Kennedy years ago when when people didn't speak up or didn't act, and and so I, look, I, I think we should all look ourselves in the mirror and, and think in our daily lives. What do we speak out about? What do we care about? What do we do? And that and that's. I, I guess I'm speaking about more than just sport. That there are there are other things when we when we think about when we think about what language do we use, um, and and man, there's this push and pull of oh wokeness and and this and that. But but the the aspiration to be better human beings and to actually treat people better and um, I I think we all should take a look in the mirror and and including me on, on a daily basis. Uh, I have a 24-year-old daughter that has helped me get a lot of words that I used as a young, as a person who grew up in Saskatchewan. Uh, you know, I, I, so I, I think it's it's about holding ourselves accountable, um, and and then having a voice to say, you know what, no, I I, I don't think this is okay, um, and I'm not sure that happens at an institution level. I think that happens in our own friends group. I think it happens in our own families. Um, you know, as a parent, I think that's an important part of what I do as a parent is I am trying to influence my children to think in a certain way, to, to have open minds and, and, and be free. So I don't know that there is a direct relationship to people, to institutions, um, other than, you know, uh, don't buy tickets. If you don't support something, don't buy tickets. 
I think also that we have to give up this belief that there is something as Canadian exceptionalism. You know, um, in regards to uh, this Hockey Canada issue, um, one of the things that came to my mind um, was a personal experience in high school. We were, I went to Southern Alberta High School with junior hockey players. And one day, there was an audio, a cassette tape played in the cafeteria by one of those hockey players. And it was a cassette tape of him having sex with a, uh, with a grade 10 student. He was in grade 12. And he broadcast it in the cafeteria. That player was suspended for a week. That young woman ran out of the school crying. And I'm ashamed to say that to this day, I don't know what happened to her. She never came back to school. But in regards to the 2003 case, the 2018 case, we haven't heard from the women. We haven't heard from the uh, survivors or victims of other cases. But what we do know is that we have reporting that has uncovered the extent to which Hockey Canada protected its reputation and protected some of its players. And for that, we're thankful. And for that, I think we haven't, those women and any survivor, if they're not strong enough to speak out at this point, what we can do for them as journalists is continue to hold those organizations accountable. And that is perhaps the first step in that prescription towards their healing, even though we don't know their stories yet. So thank you for your diligence in reporting and your determination. My name is Judy Trim. I'm with CTV National News, and it's been a privilege. Natalie. This has been a superb 90 minutes of discussion. On behalf of the CJF and the entire audience, I want to thank our panel for sharing your work, your process, and your insights into a challenging investigation that has led to a reckoning for Hockey Canada, but to also echo Ken's words, a hope that these stories and other stories will lead to profound cultural change for sport in Canada. Our thanks to Judy Trin for leading this discussion and for making it one we can all benefit from. Please join me in one last round of appreciation for our speakers tonight. Our work would not be possible without the dedicated and generous support of our sponsors and all of you here tonight. Thank you for joining us, for supporting truth and quality in journalism, and we look forward to seeing you at our upcoming events. Have a good evening.